So this is the third and final platform in a series that we're doing on world religions and ethical culture, asking some of the big questions. And just to catch you up or refresh your memory, whether you were here or not for the last two, the first week we talked about human nature and we asked, are we good at heart? And we looked at how different world religions and ethical culture look at human nature. Second, last week, we talked about transcendence. We asked, is that all there is? And uh, got a little heady and kind of had a duplex thing going on with two levels. They were side by side. People who are here know what I'm talking about, the Oklahoma duplex. (laughs) And then, this week, we are coming back down to earth, to very real, practical earth, as we talk about how we make ethical choices how we make the decisions that we grapple with throughout our lives. For many of us, I think especially here, this is what real religion is about. As Gandhi said in the opening words, this is the true religion. And we aren't the only ones that think that. Some of you know, and I mentioned last week, the Charter of Compassion started by the um, scholar, the religious scholar Karen Armstrong, which looks at the golden rule and the idea of compassion as binding religions together. Ethical culture itself, at its founding in 1876, was created partly out of the belief that ethics was at the core of religious traditions, that no matter what we believe in terms of metaphysics, that we agree on how to act together, that together we can come to an understanding of how to behave in the world, and that that's the core of our religious tradition. So for many of us, it's this uh, this part of the series, this question that may feel like the most important question the most salient piece of our own religious, ethical, spiritual lives. So funny story. When I was first starting my training as an ethical culture leader, which I started right after this congregation invited me to come here as your senior leader, I started the process, kind of multi-year process of training to become a certified ethical culture leader. And I had my very first interview with the committee. It was up at New York at the New York Ethical Society. And uh, they were looking over, among other things, my transcript from seminary, which I had recently graduated from. And, you know, I I did pretty well in seminary, and I I did pretty consistently. My grades kind of all looked very similar to each other, except for one class, which stood out because it was the one class where my grade was really a little lower than the rest of the grades that I had had in seminary. Can you guess which class that was? Ethics. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a really fun starting point for that interview, that conversation. So uh, <clears throat> they had some questions about that. <laughs> First, I want to assure you that I didn't do badly in that class. <laughs> just wasn't quite as good as the rest of my classes. <laughs> and here's why, or <laughs> at least this is what I told the uh, interview committee. And I think it's true. <laughs> I went to a Methodist seminary, and uh, many of the classes that I took there were totally translatable. You know, pastoral care, how we care for each other, it's the same, really, no matter where you're coming from. And some of the classes were a little bit more of a stretch, and either they were interesting to me, you know, sort of to engage with in a philosophical level, um, or I didn't go to quite all the classes. I skipped the the section on baptism, for instance. It didn't seem like it was going to be relevant. Um, Well, this whole class was on Christian ethics, ethics specifically from a Christian standpoint. And so, I believe, (laughs) and, and will continue to 
swear to, that the reason that that class didn't go quite so well for me was that the sources of authority for ethical decision-making that were presented by the class and that were asked for by the professor and the papers and in the exams were really different from the sources of authority that I turned to for my ethical decision-making. And it's that idea of sources of authority that I want to look at first. I want to look at sources of authority in a couple of different religious traditions, kind of how we get there, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how we make ethical decisions within our context for sources of authority within ethical culture. So so let's start with sources of authority in world religious traditions. First of all, I say that as though, you know, each religious tradition has just one source of authority and they're set and everybody agrees on it. If that were the case, there would be sort of monolithic Christianity, monolithic Judaism, etc. through the world religions. And of course, that's not the case. Of course, people have different understandings, different interpretations, and different sources, as we'll see. However, for the three Abrahamic faiths, I talked about that earlier, that's Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all called that because they share Abraham as one of their founding figures. Those three Abrahamic faiths place a great deal of authority in, a t- in text. They're sometimes called the people of the book. I don't know if you've heard that phrase. There's actually, I think, a novel with that title, which sort of helps. Um, but people of the book, people for whom the book, the sacred text, is really important in their religious tradition. Other religious traditions also have sacred texts, but usually multiple sacred texts. Hinduism has a lot of different texts that they draw from, Buddhism as well. So it's unique to the Abrahamic faiths to have a core text that's central and essentially agreed upon with some differences in what's apocrypha and what where the books go and order and things like that, but essentially agreed upon within the tradition. We often think of that text, that scriptural text, as a particularly important source of authority when we think about fundamentalism or fundamentalists within the traditions. Now, there's fundamentalism and fundamentalists within every religious tradition. I think in America, in the popular imagination, we think most frequently about Christian fundamentalism, particularly here in America, and Muslim fundamentalism. Frequently, we think of that abroad. So that's kind of what plays uh, plays around in our imaginations. Fundamentalism, as defined by Wikipedia, my source for all things, is, and I quote, the demand for a strict adherence to specific theological doctrines. Now, I think when we're talking about fundamentalism, and we mean somebody who's really looking toward the text as the core for for their source of authority for decision-making, what we're really meaning is scriptural literalism. And scriptural literalism is a piece within fundamentalism. Wikipedia defines that as the interpretation or translation of the explicit and primary sense of words in the Bible. So within the broad category of fundamentalism, what we're really talking about is scriptural literalism literalism, the literal meaning of words in the Bible, and using that as the source for decision-making. So the thing is, even within scriptural literalism, even if, if you locate yourself in that tradition, you still need some help with interpretation. That cannot be your only source of authority, and here's why. First of all, sacred texts generally have contradictory stories. That's certainly true in the Bible. We talked in the very first platform in this series about the two creation stories. So we already know about some of the the double stories, and that happens throughout the Hebrew Bible and in other texts and scriptures as well. 
So you already need some help with interpretation because you've got a couple of different stories to draw from to figure out where you're going to place meaning. The other thing is that modern life doesn't always mesh perfectly with a literal understanding of Scripture. So again, you need help figuring out exactly what to draw from, exactly what's going to be um, really key in your own ethical decision-making. One example of that that I like to um, point to, particularly when we think about whether there's anybody who's really living or how many people are really living as scriptural literalists actually goes with the word mesh. One of the um, injunctions in the Hebrew Bible found, I think, in Deuteronomy is not to wear blended garments, like a, poly- a polycotton blend is forbidden. I mean, there, there weren't polycotton blends in those times. But, but um, now, most people who consider themselves to be scriptural literalists don't follow that particular guideline. Some actually, I think, do, but most don't. So, so you can see the way, even when the text is a primary source of authority, we're still kind of trying to figure out how to interact with that text in our lives. So book-based traditions, those three book-based traditions I talked about, also have traditions of teachers and interpreters that are always really important within the traditions. Within Islam, I'm going to talk about that a little bit and we'll get move on to Judaism. Within Islam, most of us know about the major divisions of Sunni Islam and Shiite Islam. And, and, and that goes back to almost the beginning, right after Muhammad died and some succession problems and unclear succession and political pieces as well as religious differences. Even within those two big divisions, though, there are also traditions of teachers who hold a great deal of importance within the tradition. Which, which teacher, which school of teaching you follow for your interpretation of various sacred texts. And they've got very different understandings. You know, you think about Muslim women who might be on the, on the far end of hijab, hijab is the general word for a covering, right? On the far end of hijab, we have women in burqas. That's the full covering with eye slits, the black that we think of in Saudi Arabia. On the, on the other end, there are Muslim women who don't cover their hair at all. Now, it's not that those women are in different religions. It's not that they're reading different texts. It's that they're following different schools of teaching around the text. They're following different teachers who, are, who interpret it differently and provide different interpretations for the people that work with them. That tradition can be interpreted in multiple ways and followed in different ways. So we already see the beginning of kind of that source of authority in in the text interacting with human experience, interacting with reason, interacting with, uh, with interpretation. The same thing is true in Judaism. The text is highly important kind of throughout Jewish practice. And in fact, Jewish congregations read through the whole of the Torah over the course of the year. That's really the key part of their, of their regular weekly ritual. We think particularly of the Orthodox and Hasidim communities in terms of their adherence to text. If we think about kind of scriptural literalism and, um, uh, and, and, following code really carefully. We think about those communities in particular. Our neighbors right here at, at Ohev Shalom, which is one of the Orthodox synagogues in the area, um, and we've got that, that's where we have folks walking on Saturday morning because they don't drive, because they follow codes not to, not to drive on the Sabbath, etc. But even within there, we've got levels of teaching and different teachers that provide different interpretations of the text. Same thing as in, as in Islam. Um, that, that, that study very carefully, well, if you if you can't turn on a light, can you leave a light on? Can you use a timer for a light? All of the little details of following within that code. I think for some of us who are not within that tradition, it can be 
a little hard to understand sort of the particularities of the code that are followed. And I want to share a conversation I had with a friend of mine a, a number of years ago now who's a conservative rabbi. Uh, and she and her family keep kosher and um, follow uh, practice Shabbat. So during Shabbat, they don't turn on lights and things like that. And I went to her house for um, Shabbos dinner on Friday night and, and saw their practice, which is to leave a couple of lights on in the house so that you know they, they have light throughout the night and don't turn it off. And, and I think you can start. I, I certainly started to interact with that, thinking, well, you're leaving lights on. I mean, just because you're not turning the light on while you're there, you, know, you still have the light on. You know, does that really count? She, she, she was very helpful to me in understanding for her the way that practice interacted. She talked about that, that in her understanding of Judaism, it wasn't about the spirit of the law, but about the letter of the law. So figuring out those very fine lines of what she could and couldn't do within the law was important to her because, she said, it's not that she thought turning a light on or keeping a light on was, you know, the end of the world. But making those decisions, building a life around those practices, reminded her that her life was centered in something beyond the values of society, that there was something at the center of her life that was important. And so it was in the details. It was in the little hair splitting as she figured out how to practice the law in her life that she found a kind of centering practice. Now, are we talking with all of this sort of these different codes and laws and teaching and how we interpret text? Are we talking about ethics or about moral codes? And I want to try to parse that a little bit for us here. Because there are people that make a distinction between ethics and between morality. I'd like to quote, and I'm going to quote from them a couple of times as we continue through, two Unitarian Universalist ministers who've written an adult education course on ethics. Uh, Manish Mishra Marzetti and Amber Beland. And they write in talking about the difference between ethics and morality. Quote, the two words point to different ways of describing the choices we make. Morality has to do with adherence to behavioral codes that come from religion or philosophy. Ethics describes the obligations we have to one another and to the natural world and the behaviors dictated by those obligations. Morality refers to rules of right conduct, while ethics refers to a system of moral principles, end quote. Now, I'm not usually one to get hung up on semantics, and I think that the semantics aren't that important here. The idea, the broader idea, I think, is that sometimes we make decisions that are based on a kind of, of code around behavioral norms, and sometimes we make decisions that are really based in deep principles and how we want to be with each other and how we want to be in the world. And sometimes it gets fuzzy. I think about the Ten Commandments, which certainly are a kind of code, but which also tap into deep moral principles about how we behave toward each other, what our obligations are to each other. Or the idea coming from the Rabbi Hillel that the whole of Torah teaching, do you, do you know this story? There's a, a man comes to two rabbis and asks the first rabbi, you know, I, I will, con- as a Gentile, I'll convert to Judaism if you can teach me the whole Torah in, um, oh, I think while standing on your foot. Right, and, and the Torah is long, and Torah teachings long, and this seems like a pretty unreasonable request. And so the first rabbi, I think in the story, the first rabbi 
hits him with a piece of paper or something, newspaper, and he goes away. But then he comes back and he asks the second rabbi, and the second rabbi is Rabbi Hillel, and Hillel is a, a key figure in the Jewish rabbinic tradition. So we know that what Rabbi Hillel is going to say is going to be pretty good. <laughs> and so what he says is, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto another. That is the whole of the Torah. The rest is commentary. <laughs> and you can do that on one foot. So you can see there the interaction between code and really deep moral principles, guiding moral principles that we do see within multiple religious traditions. And even those of us, I think, that aren't in in text-based, in scripture-based traditions, we have our own codes. We create them ourselves. We find them other places. We bring them with us from our childhood. Our main source of authority, though, and here I want to shift a little bit, Maybe even for some of us, the source of the creation of those codes is not text, but human experience. Within the liberal religious tradition and within humanism particularly, that core of human experience as deeply important to who we are and how we make decisions, that's one of the you could say heresies, you could say births, you know, it's one of the, of the flowerings within liberal religion and humanism. The importance of human experience was there at the birth of Unitarianism and certainly at the birth of ethical culture um, in particular. We are, however, not the only ones who have noticed that human experience is important. We talked about it a little bit, you know, all of that interpretation and teaching that, that folks within textual, textual traditions do. That comes out of the lived human experience with the text, trying to figure out how that text works within our own lives. My seminary, which I mentioned earlier was Methodist, uses the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Uh, These are ways to know God and ways to know how to act. The Wesleyan quadrilateral just means four sides, right? Scripture is one of the four. That's not surprising. It's a Christian tradition. Methodism is within Christianity, text-based, great. Reason is one of the four. You know, the idea that we're given reason and we can use it to figure out our interaction with scripture. Tradition is one of the four. What have people done before us and how do we continue to honor that? And then human experience is one of the four as well. So even within text-based traditions, we see the really key component of human experience there. Well, the problem is that codes really are a lot more convenient, actually, than human experience, because human experience is messy, it's gray, it changes, it changes over our lifetime, it changes generation to generation. Wouldn't it be nice if we just had a little set of codes, 10, for instance? Still, within the progressive religious tradition, there are different approaches to ethical decision-making. So I want to just walk through a few of them with you. And I'm going to do them pretty quickly. I'm going to use a couple of big words because I think they're kind of fun to know. We aren't going to be able to get into them that much this morning. But if you're interested, if it sounds like something you'd like to explore more, let me know. Because many of these are coming out of that curriculum that I mentioned earlier. It says adult education curriculum on ethical decision making. And if there's interest and folks would like, it's something that I could adapt and offer here. So give me feedback. So... We start, this is one of, this is maybe the biggest word, with deontological ethics. And I'm going to quote here, again, from, from Manish and Amber. Deontological ethics is the idea that there is absolute, eternal, unchanging moral truth out there in the world. 
The most prominent advocate, I, I continue to quote, of this approach is the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Kant further developed deontological ethics, asserting the existence of a moral rule he termed the categorical imperative. That's the idea that if if everybody that that um, that something you do to know that it's more morally correct, you should be able to universalize it. So if everybody did that, would the world be okay? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't do it yourself. The categorical imperative. Now. This is a particularly important one for us in ethical culture to know about, this idea of deontological ethics, and especially deontological ethics based in Kant's philosophy. Because as some of you might know, Immanuel Kant was a a really important figure for Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture. When Adler went to Europe to study before he started ethical culture, so he started ethical culture when he was 24, I guess he was like 11 when he went to Europe to study. (laughs) Anyway... Off he went, and one of the things that he studied and that, that his imagination and his heart were really captured by was, Im- was Immanuel Kant. We pull out of that frequently the idea of the inherent worth of every person, which comes out of Kant's philosophy, the idea that, um, that, all pe- that people are ends in themselves. They can't be used as means. That's really related to our, de- our idea of inherent worth. But also out of that study of Kant, I think you can see Felix Adler's belief in the idea of deontological ethics, the idea that there is moral truth there somewhere, an ideal morality out there in the world. And, you know, sometimes I agree with Adler. Sometimes I think there are true moral things on a very deep and very basic level. The problem is that I think it's so deep and so basic that it's hard to apply to the gray areas in life. It's hard to apply as we move into what might be called situational ethics, you know, looking at ethics within the context of the current situation that we're in. Okay, that was deontological ethics. Done. Wasn't that fast? Now, utilitarianism. Another major way, particularly historically, of making ethical decisions. John Stuart Mill is the name that you might associate most with utilitarianism. If you had a philosophy class in in college, and it's kind of somewhere back there in the back of your brain. John Stuart Mill uh, had the, the idea that ethics is about making the maximum number of people happy. And so you try to make whatever decision will make the most people happy. I mean, really, it's, it's set up almost like a, like a math problem. You know, it, it's a little bit like majority voting, I think. And so you've got, you know, the most number of people happy, even though this number of people over here might not be happy, but you've got the most people happy, so that's the right decision to make. On the one hand, it, it's really focused on common on communal welfare. It's focused on that that majority um, need. On the other hand, like majority voting, it has a disadvantage of having some people really kind of left out in the good of all as we make ethical decisions. Utilitarianism done. Check. Virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is actually really important within many religious traditions. It's the idea of living a virtuous life yourself and therefore adding to the ethical good of, of the world, of, the commu- of your own community and the world at large because of the virtues you live in your life. And frequently within virtue ethics, we see key figures like Jesus, like Gandhi. Both of those can be seen as people who lived virtue ethics, who spoke about their own ethical life, the the virtues that they carried, encouraged people to have their, to have those virtues in their life and to create a better community through that. So rather than utilitarianism where we look at the whole and what's going to work for the whole and most of the whole, 
right? Within virtue ethics, we start with the individual. What makes me a good person? And if we all practice virtue ethics, if we're all trying to be good people, the whole, we will get to ethical decisions for the whole. It's kind of the looking at it the opposite way. Virtue ethics, check. Narrative ethics. And here I think we're starting to really get to some of the ethical standpoints and the ways to look at ethical decision-making that my guess is resonate most deeply for some of us, certainly resonate most deeply for me. Narrative ethics comes out of the idea of the importance of human story and our relationships to other people and the stories that we hear. It's, it's the idea that in the stories, as we're moved by by people's stories and by our relationships with them, we begin to see different ethical decisions than we might have been able to come to before we heard those stories. An example that's frequently given within narrative ethics is, uh, is something that I think we actually see in our, in our life right now as a country, and it's something that gives me a great deal of hope. That's the idea that as, as more and more people come out within the LGBTQ community and as more and more people nationwide know folks who are gay or lesbian or transgendered or genderqueer, as they know them and love them as they're their neighbor or their cousin and they begin to hear their stories, slowly people's ideas about ethical decision-making around LGBTQ issues are changing. Out of the stories and the relationships that they have with their neighbors, with their cousins, with their brothers, with their children, they're beginning to see a new way of thinking about what's right. And that's, it's, that's an amazing thing to see. And I think we are seeing it in our country. I think we particularly see it in generational shifts in the country as we look at some of the statistics about how people feel um, in, in, in one generation and how people feel in generations you know, younger than I, teenagers, and, and, and their experience with LGBTQ issues. I think, I think a lot of that change that we see around ethical ideas there comes out of a kind of narrative decision-making based in the stories and the, and the relationships that they have. This is what Manish uh, Mishra and Amber Beland say about narrative ethics uh, and, and, and why it's important for progressive religious folks. Our faith is rooted not in common scriptures, but instead in common values. And as we live these values together, we draw on life experiences to illuminate, illustrate, and justify our moral and ethical choices and actions. Narrative ethics leads us to share our own stories and to attend to those of other people as we consider ethical and moral choices. Now, if we go one further than narrative ethics, we get to what's called relational ethics, which is specifically about how we are in relationship to each other. It's the, it's the kind of ethical decision-making that I think is most clearly rooted in heart and feeling, in how we feel toward each other, how we're moved by each other, and how we're moved particularly because we're in relationship, because we're in connection to each other. Again, uh, Manish and Amber write, as we live our day-to-day lives, we don't always ground our decisions in neatly framed logic, but instead respond from the heart with compassion, empathy, or a sense of shared humanity. This reality provides the foundation for relational ethics, a framework that speaks to our relationships with one another and how those relationships influence our decisions. 
Now, in the meditation that Mary led this morning, you might have identified some of these sources of authority as you thought about decisions that you've made. You might have been able to say, it was a story I heard, or it was an article that I read, or someone I trusted told me what they thought. But how do we know that we're right? After these sources of authority, after we've come to some decision, some ethical decision in our lives, how do we know that we've made the right choice? I actually like a test that I read years ago, I think in a philosophy book or in a book about ethics. I can't find the source, but I remember the general idea. It was, it was the shouting in a football field test. The idea was, you know you've made an ethical decision correctly if that decision were broadcast in a football field in front of a stadium of people, and you would feel okay about that. So it's this very practical way of understanding. It's also sometimes phrased as, would you be comfortable having a child in your life here about that decision that you made? Would you be proud to tell that story to to a child? But what about really difficult decisions? There are decisions, I think, of which we may not feel proud. We may not want them shouted from a football field, but that at the time we know are the right decisions. And that's really where we get to the idea of situational ethics, ethics and and ethical decision-making that occur within the context of lived experience, which is messy, which is gray, and which changes over the course of a lifetime or sometimes over the course of a single day. Many of you might know one of the um, tests that's given to children throughout their development Maybe not everybody's mother gives them this test throughout their development, but my mother is a child psychologist, so frequently as a child she would say, so Amanda. (laughs) Yeah, she's a lovely, wonderful person and a great mother, I just want to say. But she did enjoy, you know, videotaping me for classes, all that. So... One of the things that she would, she would ask me was, um, was a, a key moral test, and at a certain point in the child's development, they switch over from what's essentially kind of right and wrong thinking, really polarized thinking about you can do this and you can't do this, to being able to grapple with situational ethics. And, and here's, here's the story, and you probably know it. There's a man who um, steals medicine. Is that right or wrong? Is it, it's wrong to steal, right? We all know that. Wrong to steal. But he steals medicine, we find out, because his sick child doesn't have uh, insurance, doesn't have access to medicine. They have no money. He's very poor. And so he steals the medicine for his child. And at some point in a child's development, they're able to switch from saying, oh, no, it's still not right. Stealing's always wrong. To being able to see that within the situation, that may be a hard and right choice that we may have pulls on ourselves that that ask us to make choices that in a right or wrong world don't feel right, but within the context of the real world are the right choice to make. That's a shift that folks make, and I think that that's something that as adults we grapple with, sort of how do we get to the, the best possible choice in a world that doesn't always offer best possible options. And sometimes we just make the wrong decisions. Sometimes they were the right decision at the time, we think, and as we look back, we realize they were wrong. And sometimes we know they're wrong almost immediately, right after we've made them. And that's, I think, where a community and a religious tradition can be especially helpful.
We sometimes talk about ethical societies being living laboratories. That was a phrase that Felix Adler used, and it, it meant a place where we can practice being ethical. And part of practicing is messing up and trying again. Other traditions get at this idea, too, that the community is a place to make mistakes and admit mistakes and then move forward. Frequently, in those traditions, you get to that kind of idea through penance and forgiveness. And I sometimes wish that we had a form of kind of corporate confession, a time or a place for us to be able to say together, I do not always get it right. I mess up sometimes. And to be able to offer each other forgiveness, to offer ourselves forgiveness. Because it's in that confession and in the forgiveness that follows that we're able to move forward and make a new decision next time. Okay, so looking at all of these different traditions, we see different sources of authority and different endpoints as well, obviously, among the traditions and within the traditions. One of the questions that I don't quite have an answer for, but that I want us to think about as we look at world religions and particularly as we look at our relationship to folks in other religious traditions, is what is most important to us? Is it agreeing with the source of authority for decision-making, or is it agreeing with the final decision? If somebody comes to the same place that we are using a very different source of authority, does it matter? The commonality, I think, among all these traditions and our tradition as well is in practice. Within each tradition and within our own, we practice our moral codes. Even here at the Ethical Society, where we're not so big on codes, we talk frequently about the inherent worth of every person. We, we repeat that phrase that we work to elicit the best in others and thereby in ourselves. We practice those codes with each other. We practice teachings as well, whether there's a sacred text that's central to our tradition or whether we draw from the philosophy of our founder, from poetry, from novels, from our own stories and our own narratives. And we practice our lived human experience, our relationships and the responses that we have to each other, as well as our experience in our own lives, our experiences of making mistakes, asking forgiveness, and trying again. I want to end, then, thinking about that idea of practice with a quote from Aristotle. The moral virtues are produced in us neither by nature nor against nature. Nature, indeed, prepares in us the ground for their reception, but their complete formation is the product of habit. May this be a place where we develop good habits.